Exodus 32, 1 through 4, and 33, 1 through 11. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom have brought you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I will consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. The word of the Lord. Every great story has a problem that needs to be solved. Will, uh, will Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy find a way to be together? <laughs> will Harry Potter find a way to save himself and all his friends from the evil Lord Voldemort? Will Killmonger ruin Wakanda or will T'Challa find a way to come back and, and save the day? Uh, every great story has a problem that needs to be say, uh, solved. Uh, 
I want to suggest that this passage that we just read is the big problem in the book of Exodus. Now, some of you might say, wait a minute, I thought the big problem was getting the Israelites out of slavery, and that certainly is one of the big problems in Exodus. Um, And it's a great story. You know, there's plagues and Passover and the Red Sea and, and Mount Sinai and all that. It's epic stuff. It's summer blockbuster kind of stuff. But, but getting the Israelites out of slavery is not the biggest problem in the book of Exodus because that problem actually gets solved pretty quickly in the story. I mean, 15 chapters, boom, they're out. It's over. But then you still have 25 chapters left in the book to go. That means that the biggest problem in Exodus is not how to get the people out of slavery. There's something bigger than that. What is it? That the, the biggest problem in the book of Exodus is right here in chapter 33. Exodus is not only a story of deliverance from political and economic oppression. It is that, but even more than that, it's a love story. And this passage we just read, this is where the, the big betrayal happens. This is where the big question becomes, what's going to happen to Israel? Is God going to find a way to, to win them back? This, this gets us to the heart of what is probably the most important, the most crucial, the most urgent question in every single one of our lives, whether you um, realize it or not. And the question is, how does God become a living reality in your life? How does God become a living, transformational, and personal reality in your life? It's one of the biggest questions that every single one of us has to wrestle with. Um, so, for instance, some of you are here this morning, you may not even know whether or not you believe in God, but you're here because maybe something has been stirring you and you want to find out what it is. This passage helps give you answers. Or maybe, uh, maybe you're a new Christian and you're still learning, you're still growing, you, uh, there's a lot that you need to find out, there's a long road in front of you, you want to know, what should I be thinking about? What should I be looking for? This passage helps give you answers. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but maybe it's also been a long time since you really felt the presence of God. You're lost, you're you're hurting, you're empty. How does that change? Or maybe you grew up in church, you've been in church your whole life, and if someone were to ask you, you would say, oh, I'm a Christian. But if they said, tell me more about that, you would tell them about your experience in the church, not your experience with God. There's a big difference. The biggest, the most important, the most urgent and crucial question in every single one of our lives is, how does God become a living, transformational, and personal reality in your life? The answer is spiritual renewal. Or, as it's often called, uh, revival. But this passage shows us what revival really means. And by the way, this is at the heart of our vision as a church. One of the big reasons that we exist here, we say our vision is to help build a great city through spiritual, social, and cultural renewal. That means that as a church, we care about social renewal. We care about cultural renewal. But the first and the most important renewal from which all of the other renewal springs is spiritual renewal. What is that? What is spiritual renewal? This is so important. We're actually going to begin looking at it this week and continue next week in the same chapter. But let's see two big things this week about spiritual renewal. We're going to see our need for spiritual renewal, and we're going to see how we prepare 
for spiritual renewal, okay? Our need for renewal and how we prepare for it, all right? So first, our need for spiritual renewal. Um, and let me begin by, like, once again, just giving us a 30,000-foot flyover uh, overview of the story of Exodus up until this point. Israel uh, were slaves in Egypt, and then God brought them out of slavery through a series of supernatural plagues on Egypt, and then they went through the Red Sea on dry land. God parted the waters, but then when the Egyptian army tried to follow them through, they got drowned in the waters. And then God brought them out into the wilderness. He brought the Israelites to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where God came down on the mountain. And if you were with us last week, you saw that Mount Sinai is where God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments. And the first commandment, if you were with us last week, we saw this, the first commandment is the one from which all of the other commandments flow. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. That means that the first commandment is all about our relationship with God. Everything else flows from that. Guess what happens What's the first commandment that the Israelites break? It's this one. It's the relationship with God one. So we just read the beginning of chapter 32. In chapter 32, what happens is uh, Moses is uh, up on the mountain talking with God. He's been gone a long time, so the Israelites begin to get anxious. They begin to get impatient. Um, Their desire for comfort and control and security gets the better of them. And so what they do is they take their golden jewelry off and they um, they force Moses' brother Aaron to make a golden calf for them. And then they bow down and they worship the golden calf and they say, these are your gods, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is the stunning, heartbreaking, catastrophic betrayal that is at the heart of the story of Exodus. This is where everything falls apart. But the really amazing thing is not what just happened. The really amazing thing is what God does about it and how Israel responds to that. What does God do when this happens? You see, at the beginning of Exodus 33, God says, Basically, Israel, I'm still sending you to the land that I promised um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm still giving you the land of Canaan. I'm going to drive the Canaanites out before you. And that's not all. Um, I'm not just going to give you the land. It's going to be a land of milk and honey. It's going to be an abundant land, a fertile land. Um, You're going to have all kinds of wonderful things. There's just one thing. In verse 3, God says, But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Basically, God's saying, Israel, you're going to have military success, political success, economic success. You're going to have power and prestige. You're going to have everything the world could possibly offer. There's just one thing you're not going to have, me. You're not going to have my presence with you. Now go. Now, how does Israel respond to that? In verse 4, it says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. In other words, when God said, you're going to have every kind of worldly success anybody could possibly hope for, you're just not going to have me. To them, that was the most disastrous, catastrophic thing that could possibly happen. Now, what do we learn from this? There's one very important thing that this teaches us, and it's just this. It's really easy to look at the Israelites and think, man, what a bunch of idiots. If, if I had seen what they saw, if I had gone through the Red Sea, if I had been on Mount Sinai, there's no way I would have rejected God like that. 
If you say that, you don't know how your heart works. Here's what this is teaching us. There's a very important principle here. We could call it the law of spiritual decline. It's like the spiritual version of the second law of thermodynamics. That means everything's running out. It's like a fire. Unless you're constantly adding fuel to the fire, eventually the fire is going to run down. Spiritually, the same thing happens. Unless you are constantly tending to your relationship with God, eventually you're going to run spiritually cold. You're going to, the, the spiritual fire is going to die down in your life. We're all like the Israelites. So listen, when you're a new Christian, you know, everything is passionate. Everything is exciting. It's easy to think, oh, I would never let what happened to the Israelites happen to me. I can't imagine anything like that ever happening. I would never betray God like that. The question is not whether or not you're going to become spiritually cold. The question is, how are you going to respond to it when it happens? Because here's the real lesson in this passage. The lesson is not, the lesson is if even people like the Israelites who had seen what they saw, if even people who had gone through the Red Sea, if even people who had been on Mount Sinai and saw God come down, if even people that went through all of that could forget God, how much more can you? The question is not whether or not this is going to happen to you. The question is not whether or not you're going to become spiritually cold. The, the question is, how do you respond to it when it happens? That's the big question. In every human heart, there's an aching void. You know, if you've been a Christian for a while, then you know how this works. There was a, a great hymn writer named William Cooper. He was one of the greatest British hymn writers of the 19th century. And he wrote a hymn once that says this. He wrote... Where's the blessing I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? What peaceful hours I once enjoyed, how sweet their memory still, but they have left an aching void the world can never fill. In every single human heart, there is an aching void. And if you're a Christian, then you know that nothing other than God can fill this void. No matter what you try to put in there, whether it's success or money or success or devotion to some great humanitarian cause or political cause, no matter what you try and put in there, if you're a Christian, you know because you've tasted that nothing other than God can possibly fill this void. And that means that as painful as the experience of this void is, number one, it's also really natural for this to happen. And number two, um, this can actually be one of the healthiest, one of the most salubrious and life-giving experiences that happens to you, depending on how you respond to it. Because you wouldn't even be, um, just the fact that you're aware of God's absence means that you're already beginning to experience his presence. You wouldn't even be aware of God's absence unless God were already in some way present to you. The knowledge that nothing else can possibly fill that aching void. That's like a pilot light of the Holy Spirit. You know, the, the fire may run down really, really low, but like the pilot light never goes out. Not, not fully. That pilot light of the Holy Spirit is always there. It's always pulling you to, to seek God, pressing you to, to seek God, pressing you to, to find the spiritual renewal that you, that you really need. That pilot light never goes out. So if you're a Christian this morning, then my encouragement to you is, A, look, this is natural. Don't be surprised by this. B, don't be so proud to think that it could never happen to you. And C, don't freak out when it does happen. 
the, 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 really the disastrous thing would be if you never noticed that anything was wrong in the first place. The experience of God's absence is an experience of his presence. It's natural. It happens. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe you're exploring faith in Jesus, um, this still applies to you too. Because one of the primary characteristics of a spiritual awakening is when you begin to come awake to the reality that there actually is an aching void in your heart. It's when you begin to become awake to the reality that worldly success isn't going to fill that void. You begin to come awake to the reality that, that the answer, the solution to the biggest problems of this world isn't better technology, better medicine, better science, better education, better politics, better social programs. That, that none of those things, all of those externals, no matter how wonderful and important they are, that none of those things are going to fill that aching void in your heart. When you hear God say to the Israelites, you can have everything in the world, all the worldly success, but if you don't have me, none of that matters. That begins to actually make sense to you so that you begin to see that there is a void in your heart and you begin to see that everything I've been trying to put in there, none of it really works. None of it's really going to fill my heart and make a difference in my life. One of the ways you know that you're beginning to understand the gospel is when you begin to see that, that Christianity is not just a program of moral self-improvement. You begin to see that the externals aren't going to fill the hole. There's an aching void there, and the externals are not going to fill it. A lot of people think, look, the Christian life is all about being a good person. So that you go to church, you try to live a good life, you serve, you give your money, you obey God, and that's what it's all about. When you begin to wake up to the reality that there's an aching void in your heart, you begin to realize that all of those externals, that nothing in the world can possibly fill that void. That's the beginning of a true spiritual awakening. So listen, if you're here this morning and that's you, listen, spiritual renewal is when you don't just want the blessings of God, it's when you want God. It's when God becomes a living reality in your life the awareness of God's absence is actually an experience of God's presence. You become, begin to become awake to that. Now, by the way, pretty much everything I'm um, telling you this morning and next week, I've learned from other preachers and teachers who've taught me a lot about the subject of spiritual renewal and revival, people like Richard Loveless, who was a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, or Tim Keller, or one of the biggest in my life has been Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once preached a whole series of sermons on this subject of spiritual renewal. And several of those sermons were actually on this passage in Exodus 33. They've had a tremendous impact on my life. But Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he used to say that, that spiritual renewal, revival, is when God pours out his Holy Spirit in such a way that people get a sense of the presence of the glory of God. It's when God pours out his Holy Spirit in such a way that people begin to get a sense of the presence of the glory of God in their lives. Um, spiritual renewal is when God becomes a living reality. And when you hear that, have you ever experienced that before and do you want to get it back? Or when you hear about that, does that stir something inside of you? If so, that means that you're already beginning to experience it. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen our need for spiritual renewal. But secondly, we see, how do we prepare for spiritual renewal? Because here's the thing. Um, spiritual renewal is when God becomes a living reality. But listen, this is something that God does. 
It's not something that we do. Spiritual renewal is not something that we can create or manufacture in our own lives. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's when God pours out His Holy Spirit and we become aware of the presence of God in a way we hadn't been before. So this is something God does, but there are ways that we can help prepare ourselves, make ourselves available for spiritual renewal. What are they? Well, let's get back to the Israelites and their story and see some things. When God told them, you're, you're going to have all the worldly success that you can imagine, you're just not going to have me, it says, when they heard that, it was a disastrous word to them. They mourned. It was um, a, a horrible, awful, catastrophic thing. So what did they do in response to that? Well, there were two things that they did. And the first one was they took off their ornaments. You notice it says in verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. It repeats it again, by the way, in verse 6, the people of Israel stripped off their ornaments. Now, what is this talking about? Very simply, this is talking about repentance, but we need to be careful about how we define that because it's easy to hear the word repentance and think that means having a really, you know, beating yourself up and, and having this kind of self-loathing religious experience. That is not what repentance means. The Hebrew word for repentance is a word that means to turn. The Greek word is a word that means to actually change direction. And you realize that is a whole lot different than just beating yourselves up. It's, it's to turn, it's to change directions, to see I'm headed in the wrong direction and I have to turn around and go in the other direction. And we see a wonderful picture of that here in this passage. What does it mean to take off your ornaments? It says the people took off their ornaments. Now, if you go back to chapter 32, what this means is this. The ornaments was the golden jewelry that the people took off in order to make the golden calf. And the ornaments also would have been the jewelry that they were wearing when they were worshiping the golden calf. In essence, the ornaments are an image or a sign or a symbol of idolatry. Now, what's an idol? An idol is, is anything that you have instead of God or in addition to God um, in order to give your life meaning and to be truly happy. An idol is anything that you need instead of God or in addition to God in order for your life to have meaning or in order to be truly happy. So when we take off our ornaments, it's a way of getting rid of our idols, dealing with our idolatry. So that means first, you just got to name them. You got to find out what they are. Second, you got to understand how they actually work in your life. And third, you have to begin dislodging them from your heart. You name them, you understand them, and you dislodge them. How does that happen? Well, one way might be that um, you sit down with a journal maybe and you make a list. You take an inventory on yourself. You, you write out what are the different things that you struggle with in life. Maybe you write out, okay, anxiety or bitterness or resentment or grumpiness or cold-heartedness or apathy, whatever it might be, whatever you struggle with. And then you begin asking yourself questions, but deeper questions, because the goal is to get down into the deeper motivations of your heart. Why am I so anxious? Why am I so grumpy? Why am I so cold-hearted or resentful? If you go deep enough, eventually you get to an idol. Eventually, if you go deep enough, you get to a golden calf. So for instance, look at the Israelites in this passage. When they got anxious because Moses was taking so long up on the mountain, what, what happened? They, what, what were they looking for? Why were they so anxious? Well, they wanted control. They wanted security. They wanted guidance. There's nothing wrong with those things. 
But instead of trusting God, they were looking for something else to provide it for them. That's an idol. Friends, there is probably nothing that is more important for us if, if, if you've been a Christian or if you become a Christian to learn than the necessity of learning to take this deeper journey. That's really what this means. It's kind of like a drill. You know how a drill works? Think about it. A drill keeps circling around the same thing over and over and over again, right? But, but as it circles around, it keeps going deeper. The, learning to do this is all about learning to take a deeper journey. It's all about going deeper with your idols, deeper into your heart motivations. That's one of the most important things. The longer you're a Christian, the more important it is to learn how to take the deeper journey. There's a book called The Critical Journey that's all about this. Um, it basically says that there, uh, it lays out the stages of the Christian life. And it says, like, stage one is uh, the stage where you're just becoming aware of God. So maybe that's initial repentance and conversion. But then stage two is, is the life of discipleship. That's where you're learning the basics of, of discipleship, prayer, learning how to read the Bible. Stage three is the productive life. That's where you're beginning to use your gifts to serve God. But then it says you hit a wall. And it, it, you get into crisis mode, and the only way to get through the wall is to take the inward journey, is to take the deeper journey. So, for instance, um, if you look at the Israelites here, they are in massive spiritual crisis here. Because when you hit the wall, when you hit the crisis, a lot of times what happens is God brings this about by allowing you to go through some kind of crisis. And, and here's the thing, you know, in order to get through the wall, in order to get through the crisis, you can't go back to one of the earlier stages that you just came through. So if you look at the Israelites, like I said, major spiritual crisis at this point in their life, but this is not a matter of them just going back and having another Red Sea experience. It's not a matter of them going back and having another Mount Sinai experience. Those were wonderful experiences. Those were these experiences of having this real spiritual high. But, but in order for them to get through the wall, to get through the crisis, it's not a matter of going back and going for the high, but a matter of going forward and going deep. The, the, the getting through the wall, getting through the crisis is a matter of learning how to take the deeper journey. That's what you have to do. So for instance, what this might look like is, um, if, you know, there are a lot of Christian traditions that will tell you that the way you get through the wall the way you get through the crisis is, depending on the tradition, they might say something like, well, look, you just need another fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Or, or you need to walk the aisle again. Or you need to get baptized again. Or you need to get deeper into Bible study. Or you need to get busier serving God. Friends, those are great things. But, but when the real need in your life is to take the deeper journey Going back to those things is a way of seeking after some kind of spiritual high rather than taking the deeper journey. It's a way of avoiding God and avoiding the deeper work that God wants to do in your life. It's a way of avoiding um, the uncomfortable emotions, of avoiding the deeper motivations and desires of our heart. It's really a way of avoiding a confrontation with our idols. We just don't want to go there. We don't want to confront those things. We don't want, to, um, we don't want them to get in our face. Now listen, there, um, there are questions that you ask yourself in order to help you take this deeper journey. You write down that list, like I said. Why am I anxious? Why am I bitter? Why am I grumpy? But then you ask yourself, where am I looking for meaning and purpose in life? Where am I looking for a sense of identity? 
Where am I looking for a sense of significance or security in my life? You ask those questions. You take the deeper journey. You learn to go down and to get down into the depths of your heart and your identity. And if you think about that, you realize this is a lot different than just beating yourself up. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're just beginning to explore faith in Jesus Christ, this applies to you too, because you can ask those same questions. The difference for you is maybe you're just beginning to become aware that there actually is an aching void in your heart. Um, Taking off your ornaments for you means that that you actually lean into that. Or if if you're someone who thinks that that, um, being a Christian is all about a a program of of moral self-improvement, for you, taking off your ornaments might mean that you allow for the possibility that that your moral goodness is actually a way of avoiding God, of stiff-arming God and keeping Him out of your life. Maybe Maybe you begin to allow for the possibility that your moral goodness is keeping you from acknowledging that there really is an aching void in your life. Now, that's the first thing that we do to prepare for spiritual renewal. We take off our ornaments. But secondly, the second thing we do is we seek God outside the camp. What does that mean? In verses 7 through 11, if you look, it says that Moses, he used to set up another tent that was outside of the main camp of the Israelites and that whenever Moses wanted to go seek God, he would go outside of the camp to this tent in order to seek God. Now, The reason is because sin alienates us from God. Sin separates us from God. God couldn't be inside the camp with the Israelites anymore because the Israelites had sinned. They'd fallen into idolatry. They had rejected God and and alienated themselves from God. So Moses had to seek God outside of the camp. Now, here's what this means. There are, um, uh, there's what we could call ordinary prayer, an ordinary way of seeking God. So that means that maybe you have your ordinary times of prayer, maybe in the morning, like a brief devotion, or maybe you pray at church, or maybe you're in a small group and you pray there. That's what we would call ordinary prayer. But then there's what we would call extraordinary prayer. That's prayer outside of the camp. That's prayer outside of the ordinary routines, outside of the ordinary times or ways or means or places of prayer. Extraordinary prayer is when you recognize that there's an extraordinary need and you go outside of the camp to seek God in an extraordinary way. So here's what this might look like. Maybe you take 15 minutes three times a day to go steal away somewhere, hide yourself, I don't know, in a broom closet at work or something like that. But the idea is that you want to find some place that's outside of the ordinary places you might normally seek God. And you want to find a place where you can go and be alone with God. And then you need to find time outside of the ordinary times that you might seek God. So that means, you know, you might have to put down your phone or turn off the TV and, and go find a place and a time where you can go be alone with God. And, and what you do is you meditate on Scripture, you journal, you pray, you seek God. And here's the thing, spiritual renewal is when that process happens in an individual, but when it happens in a whole community, that's revival. Revival is when it happens to a whole community, and it begins with the church. So if you notice, once again in verse 7, it says that everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it wasn't just Moses that was going out there. Spiritual renewal began to creep into the hearts of other people in the community, and they would go outside of the camp with Moses to seek God in prayer. Um, Revival is when a group of Jesus followers 
feel a burden on their hearts to pray for the spiritual renewal, not just of their own lives, but for a whole community, maybe a whole city, maybe even a whole country, sometimes even the whole world. It's happened before in the past, and it can happen again. And some of you feel that burden. Some of you are stirred to seek God like that. That's one of the reasons that we gather once a month on Wednesday nights to seek God in prayer. We call it unison. And one of the big reasons, one of the big things we do there is to pray that God would would revive this city, that he would pour out spiritual renewal on this city. So one of the things we do is we gather there and we pray that God would revive the city, the country, even the world. It's happened in the past and it can happen again. And do you know why it's possible? It's because there's someone who's already done all of this for you. You know, Exodus 33 is not just a picture of Israel. It's not even just a picture of you and of me. It's a picture of the gospel. How is that? It's because from all eternity, Jesus Christ sat on the throne of heaven with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ had all of the glory. He had all of the honor, all of the riches. Talk about having everything that matters. Jesus Christ had it all. And yet Jesus Christ um, had a burden on his heart. There was an aching void in the heart of the eternal creator of the universe. There was something that he had that, that, that he was missing in heaven that he couldn't get, and he had a burden on, it, uh, on his heart for it. What was it? It was you. And the burden was so heavy, the aching void was so great that Jesus Christ, um, he took off his ornaments. And not the ornaments of glory. He put off his honor. He put off his glory. He put off his riches. He became a human being and came to earth and died the most shameful, wretched, excruciating death ever devised. Jesus Christ took the deepest journey. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ sought your spiritual renewal. He went to extraordinary lengths on the cross in order to seek your renewal. You know, the the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ was crucified outside of the city gates, outside of the camp, as it were. That means that, remember, sin alienates us from God. On the cross, Jesus Christ was crucified outside of the gates, outside of the camp, because on the cross, he was taking our alienation from God upon his shoulders in order that he could bring about renewal and restoration for us in our relationship with God. The more you see Jesus Christ seeking you like that, the more you see the extraordinary lengths that Jesus went to on the cross in order to seek your renewal, the more um, your idols begin to fall away, the more your heart begins to get renewed, and the more you begin to feel a burden, not just for your own renewal, but for the renewal of all the friends, neighbors, and coworkers that are surrounding you that are filling their lives and their hearts, stuffing all kinds of things into the void that have absolutely no power to fill that void. The more you see the lengths Jesus went to seek you, the, the burden he feels for you, you begin to feel for other people. So like I said, at the heart of our vision here at Central West End Church is to be a place that is seeking God outside the camp, seeking the spiritual renewal of the city. Yes, social and cultural also, but it all flows from the spiritual renewal. And one of the big things we do is we gather together outside of the camp. We seek God in prayer. We we pray that God would pour out his Holy Spirit on this city in such a way that hundreds, maybe even thousands of people get renewed, spiritually renewed in this city. Do you know what that looks like? 
There, I love reading about stories of renewal because they've happened throughout history, throughout the history of the Christian church. One of my favorite is called the Fulton Street Revival of 1857. Fulton Street is in the Wall Street district of New York City. In 1857, um, they were having a, a, an economic downturn. The stock market was crashing. Um, railroads were closing. People were really in crisis mode. Um, and there was a church downtown on Fulton Street, a Dutch Reformed church that was about to shut its doors and close and, and move uptown. But instead of doing that, what they did is they decided to hire a businessman named Jeremiah Lanfear to come into the church and reach out to, to the people in the community that were living down in the financial district. Um, and so what he did was, Jeremiah Lanfear had a burden on his heart to seek the Lord in prayer. And what he did was he put an advertisement in the newspaper that they were going to have uh, a 12 noon lunchtime prayer meeting once a week on Wednesdays. And so he put the ad in the newspaper, and the first meeting was on September 23rd, 1857. And, and, and when the time came, there he was, and nobody showed up. He sat alone in the room for half an hour until six people showed up. But the next week, there was 20 people. And then the week after that, there was 40 people. Until um, within a few months, they actually had to start holding the prayer meeting every day of the week. In fact, within six months, there were 10,000 people praying in churches all over New York City, seeking God outside of the camp. And within nine months, 50,000 people had converted to Christianity and, and joined a local church somewhere. That's like, you know, at that time, the population of New York City was 800,000 people. That's like um, one out of every 16 people. It was extraordinary. But that wasn't it. Within the next two years, the Fulton Street Revival spread to other cities in the country. It spread to Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Chicago, Louisville, even, even here in St. Louis. And not only that, it jumped the, um, the waters so that the revival spread to Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England, um, Europe, South Africa, India, Australia, um, even the Pacific Islands. And it all began with a handful of people who felt a burden to seek God outside of the camp. Friends, we live in a culture right now that thinks Christianity is over, God is over, Religion is over. It's done with. We're not going back there. It, it, God feels at best irrelevant in our culture right now. And yet one of my prayers and one of my convictions as I read the history of revival is that it is at precisely those moments when things look darkest, when, when it looks like God is over, those are the times when God loves to pour out revival on a community, even on the whole world. And one of my prayers is that we're going to see that again in this world, in this country, maybe even in our own generation and that's why I invite you, do you see Jesus seeking you outside of the camp, seeking your spiritual renewal? Extraordinary prayer does not mean that there's anything extraordinary about us. It means that there's an extraordinary need and that we're going outside of the camp to seek an extraordinary God. Do you see the extraordinary lengths that Jesus went to on the cross in order to seek you? The more you see him seeking you, seeking your renewal, the more you will begin to feel a burden for the renewal of others. Do you feel it? Do you want it? Let's pray.